we'll pick up in verse 5, really the second half of it tonight, here in Romans chapter 5, in the second portion uh, of this message that I've entitled, Blessed Assurance, that amazing song written by John and Charles Wesley. Uh, the title really fits, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit and washed in his blood. An incredible truth that comes from this passage that we now hover over. This incredible truth of our standing in Christ Jesus tonight. If you're here tonight and Jesus Christ is your Lord if you're here tonight and you are one of the redeemed of God, if you're here tonight and you've said yes to Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, then you are secure in Christ Jesus. You have assurance of your salvation. And God wants you to know that assurance because the enemy wants to rip you off. The enemy would say to you tonight, if you're weak in the faith, that maybe this whole Christian thing isn't even real. The enemy would say to you tonight that there's something that you need to do to secure your own salvation. The enemy would say to you tonight that even if you are saved, you need to be kept saved by something other than yourself that's not God. Maybe it's an organization like a church. You see, the enemy tries to steal our assurance, tries to make us doubt the goodness, the love of God. As we come to the middle of verse 5, it says there, Now hope does not disappoint. And remember, we have both the objective and the subjective. If you were with us last week, again, one of the beauties of our new website, you can go on there. If you miss a study, you can catch up. It's there in audio, it's there in video, it's in HD video. And I look even worse in HD video than I do in person. So you want to sit back and throw spit wads at your screen, you can do that. But you can get that message. But it is infinitely important that you realize that in these verses we have covered last week in this, there is an unbreakable chain of grace that extends from the throne of God to the heart of mankind. And God wants you certain in your faith. He does not want you wandering around going, I am not really sure I'm a child of God. And so as he makes this chain even more secure tonight, that hope does not disappoint. And it begins to tell us why. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who, ha who was given to us. God's love is the single most identifying characteristic of the life of a believer. Poured out in you, poured out to you, and then poured out through you. You cannot be a child of God without understanding that God loves you. Because if you came to Christ because you were simply afraid of God, you have missed the central truth of salvation because it's found here. God loves you. That's why Jesus came in the first place. Jesus didn't just simply come as an eternal problem solver. 
Jesus did not come to this earth because the earth was a mess and it needed to be fixed. Jesus came to this earth. God sent his own son into this world because he loves you. He loves me. He loves us. And that love is eternal from time past. It goes to this day and will continue into the future. And here's the good news. That love doesn't depend on your response. That love is eternal. It is God's character. It is His nature. He is incapable of not loving you while you still have breath. If you're alive on this earth, God loves you. Both the saved sinner and the unsaved sinner. Christ died for all of mankind. He did not just die for the elect. He died for all. This passage proves that very point. For when we were still without strength, when you were still without strength, while you were weak, and beaten in your sin. While you were defeated by the enemy of your soul, Satan, while we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for, notice what it says, the ungodly. If you do a little simple study of those who are ungodly throughout the entire New Testament, you're going to find something out. The ungodly always refers to unbelievers because they are without God. They're also without hope, without Christ. Christ died for the ungodly because he would not have had to die for someone who's already righteous. For the godly. So get this. Put it in your mind. Christ didn't come to make righteous people more righteous. He came to save sinners of whom I am chief. You are chief. We are all sinners in need of a savior. Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely a righteous man will one die. Now it shifts to you and me. You see, you might be tempted, I might be tempted, and it even makes some sense that God himself, seeing someone who's super awesome, who is magnificently abundant in good works, there are times when we might throw ourselves in front of the proverbial train to save the Reverend Billy Graham or the Chuck Smiths of the world. That just seems like it might be the right thing to do. Of course you might want to save a really righteous person. But can I tell you, when it comes right down to it, you're probably not going to do that either. For scarcely a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, 
someone would even dare to die. In other words, in our humanness, we assign value to people based on the level of goodness in them. Now you may say, well, Jeff, that's not true about me. I universally love everybody. I can prove to you that that is not true. Because you will attempt to save your own life at some point in time. You may lose your life for your wife. You may lose your life for your children, maybe your parents. But at some point in time, if for no one else, you will try and save your own life. It's inherent within us. But, verse 8, circle it. But, God demonstrates his own love towards us, that same love of God that's been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, that God gave us as a gift. God demonstrates, in other words, God in technicolor, God with allegory and metaphor and with example and with practical application, God puts on a demonstration is a better way to do it. God demonstrates. He doesn't just simply give us some mental assent. He doesn't just give us understanding. God just doesn't tell us about this process or principle. God demonstrates his own love towards us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Wrap your mind around that truth. Before you ever loved God, before you were even thinking about loving God, while you were still going the wrong way, while your life was an absolute abject failure in righteousness, while you couldn't concern yourself for two nanoseconds about the things of God, before you ever knew God, God loved you and God sent Jesus to this world to die specifically for you. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. Think about that truth. Wrap your mind around it. How secure do you think you are? Start thinking about it in the sense of your assurance of your salvation. And verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood. In other words, there's a truth there that God loved you before you loved him. He sent Christ to die for you before you were even born. He knew you would be a wretched sinner. He knew you would do all the things that you've ever done. He knows the things that you have done today. He knows the things you will do tomorrow. And Jesus still came and died for you. Do you see the magnitude of that love? You see, what's being said here is mind-boggling. And how much more than having been justified by his blood. So he said, it's not enough that I tell you about it. Let me demonstrate it for you. 
the cross. Christ agonizing on the cross, looking you in the eye. You are standing at the foot of the cross because as far as God is concerned, had you been the only person on this earth at the time of the crucifixion, Jesus would have either had you nail him up there or he would have nailed himself to the cross and looked you in the eye and said, Father, forgive Jeff for he knows not what he does. That's how great the Father's love is for us. That He showed us by the blood of the cross paying the penalty for our sin. This incredible, unbreakable chain of God's grace towards us. And by this we shall be saved from the wrath through Him. This is incredible truth. This is the Lord of heaven telling you how much he loves you and how secure you are in that love. One of the things that we wrestle with in our world is the breakdown of the family. And one of the greatest hurdles that we have to overcome in our country today is that breakdown of the family. And what it does when children grow up not knowing whether they're loved or not. And the direct link between psychopathic behavior, sociopathic behavior, and a lack of love in people's lives is directly linked and associated. Now imagine that in a much greater and an eternal sense, God knows exactly how wicked our hearts are. And yet he's taken care of the penalty of our sin eternally so he can love us. You see, because a lot of people don't know what love's like in this world. But they can know the God who loves them. A lot of people don't ever get a chance to grow up in a home where they are assured that when they get home, mom and dad are still going to be there. But God will always be there. And he will never leave you And he will never forsake you. And he changes not. Because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so when he says he has saved you from what's coming, which is his wrath, because he still hates sin while loving sinners. And he has to punish all sin. So the way he takes care of my debt of sin is through the death of his own son. That's how much he loves us. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. You were an enemy of God. I was an enemy of God. And God said, I'm even going to put away the fact that Jeff Gill is going to be born into this world and he's going to spend the first 13 years of his life not knowing me, not caring about me, not serving me, not honoring me. He's going to live a life of sin. Jesus still died for me even knowing that I would be adding stripe upon stripe upon stripe that would need to be paid for with his blood. He still loved me. 
Furthermore, from the time I gave my life to Him, every dumb, ridiculous thing that I have ever done that transgressed God's character and nature, Jesus said, and oh, by the way, Father, I've got that paid for as well. While, when we were enemies, reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. How secure are you? Mind-bogglingly secure in Christ. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So not only was the price paid, but the books were balanced. Do you see those two words in tension? The price was paid. We have absolutely, completely been reconciled, but there's also been a reconciliation. In other words, the the price that was necessary was actually paid. And oh, by the way, even the record of you ever owing it was taken care of. And so these final three links in the chain of grace, the fourth link, it's his divine love. Look at this. That fourth link that binds us together. I don't know how many of you have ever seen The Bridge Over the River Kwai. It's, it's one of the greatest movies of all time. I think it's like number 13 on the, the Academy of Arts and uh, Musical or Movie Arts and Sciences. But it is, I think it was up for eight Oscars at 1-7. Alec Guinness plays the role. And it, it takes place during World War II, during the campaign in Burma. And there's a bridge that's built over the River Kwai. It's ultimately going to be there to transport prisoners of war. And finally, there's this incredible scene that happens. It actually comes from a book that was written by a man named Ernest Gordon. He was a devout Christian. He was actually the chaplain of Princeton University, a Presbyterian university. And he was captured. He was actually in that camp awaiting death. And a little excerpt from it, I want to read it to you. It says, We found ourselves on the same track with several carloads of Japanese wounded after we were freed from the Kauai prison camp. These unfortunates were on their own without medical care. No longer fit for action in Burma, they'd been packed into railway cars which were returning to Bangkok. They were in a shocking state. I've never seen men filthier. Their uniforms were encrusted with mud and blood and excrement. Their wounds were inflamed, full of pus, crawling with maggots. The maggots, however, probably saved their lives, prevented gangrene. And it was apparent why the Japanese were so cruel to their prisoners. If they didn't care for their own, why would they care for us? The wounded looked at us forlornly, and they sat with their heads resting against their carriages, waiting for death. They'd been discarded as expendable, the refuse of war. These were the enemy. The more cowed and defeated they became, the more we looked on them with pity. Without a word, most of the officers in my section unbuckled their packs and took part of their own ration, a rag or two, and with the water in their canteens and with their hands, they went over to the Japanese train. 
Our Japanese guards yelled at us and tried to prevent us screaming, no good, no good. But we ignored them and knelt down by the enemy to give them water and food and to clean and bind their wounds. Grateful cries of Oregato. Thank you. Followed as we left. I regarded my comrades that day with wonder. Eighteen months ago, they would have gladly joined in the destruction of those same captors had they fallen into their hands. And now these same officers were dressing the enemy's wounds. In that moment, I experienced grace in those blood-stained railroad cars. God had broken through the barriers of our prejudice and reminded us of his supreme command, his supreme love, a command that we were bound to obey as Christians, to love our, love our neighbors as ourselves, and to even love our enemies. Family of God, though that is an extreme example of God's grace, to be sure, it pales in comparison by the, to the passage that we just read here in Romans. We can think of that situation, probably most of you, if not all of you, have seen that movie, and, and you can remember the context of it. It's a true story. But can I tell you the story of your own life is far worse. Because you are an alienated person who is unable to do anything to save yourself. You were a prisoner of your own soul, and so was I. You were destined to die a death that would have sent you eternally separated from God in torment. And God did more than open up his pack and take out a few pieces of bread and some water and some bandages and tend to your physical wounds. God gave his own son so that you would not die. His unmerited favor and grace, his love was poured out upon us. God put that in your hearts. That's why we all know John 3.16. That's the whole gist of it. For God so loved the world. Fallen mankind. Us, you, me, all of us, with all of our faults and weaknesses. All the garbage, all the junk. All the filth. God loved us before any of that was cleaned up. And so one of the evidences that God loves me is my love back for him. Because unless he had first loved me, there'd be no chance I'd love him. I would have been wandering around still dead in my trespasses and sins. Or in John, 1 John 4, if you want to turn there, you can. What kind of love is this that is poured out? What, what kind of love... It, it, I, I can't even imagine it. Because that phrase there that, that begins in verse 5, it's poured out upon us. It, it's not like just a little dab. It's you're drowning in the love of God. You're flooded with the love of God. 
God poured out so much love that there was no way you could miss that love. It's like you're standing in the bottom. I don't know if you drove by the L.A. River today, but it's for the first time in a long time. It's full all the way from one side to the other. If you'd have been standing out there when that started to flow like that, there was no chance you weren't going to get some water on you. In the same way God's love is poured out, there is no chance that anyone can come into this world and not at some point in time experience the love of God. It's not possible. Because His love is poured out on wretched sinners, not saved saints. Of course, we still get it after we're saved, but He pours it out upon us while we're still wretched. While we're still doing the wrong thing, He's doing the right thing. But there in 1 John 4, verses 7 through 10, it says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And it's using the, the, the Greek word there, agape, or agapeo. It's a type of love that denies itself. It's a type of love that doesn't expect anything in return. It's a type of love that would love even when it's unloved in return. Or he who does not love does not know God. And then it tells us why. God is love. God's defined by that kind of love. And he pours it out on this world. And the way that he helps us understand that is by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The fact that God gives us the Holy Spirit as we're poured out and flooded with love helps us to understand exactly how much he loves us. It is out of the rivers of blessing that God puts into our lives that we understand that God actually cares for us. God cares for you. God cares for me. And and he has poured into us so that he can pour out of us. It's not our ability to live godly. It's his ability to flood us with so much love that it overcomes your weaknesses and mine. His love is superior to our sin in that sense. No matter how much you could possibly ever sin, his love is greater than the sum and the total of all of mankind's sin. It's that kind of love, and he does that by planting his own spirit within us. Why Jesus himself said there in John 7, he said, look, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from in his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Out of us is going to come what's poured into us. When you're flooded with the love of God, you're going to flow out the love of God. That's why an unloving Christian is actually an oxymoron. It should not be able to be. Because we've been poured into. We've been poured onto. We should be bathed in and pouring out the same thing that we ourselves have received. God can only make this godliness work in us by the Spirit. It's not we work that out. God pours it into us. And then we exercise what we've been given. You don't understand that when you aspire to live holy that's a work of the spirit when you desire to pray that's a work of the spirit in you when when you desire to study God's word that's a work of the spirit that's come in you and upon you that's the love of God being poured upon you and the result of it is you do things differently you used to do it's how we know we're being led by the spirit 
Does that mean you're going to be perfect? No. Not me, not you, not anyone. No human being, the great apostles, all of them. Some of the greatest examples we have in Scripture of men of God and women of God were also some of the deepest failures that are in the Bible. People whose character was certainly not perfect, but God poured into them so that he could pour out of them, and he poured more into them than was the sum and the total of their sinfulness. The Holy Spirit indwells us, enabling us, freeing our lives from the bondage of sin and death. And in that sense, our our natural man is incapable of, of experiencing that kind of love. It just doesn't happen. That's why people are so miserable. When you talk to people who don't know the Lord about spiritual things, they never seem to come to that conclusion that there's any point to even living for the most part. They don't know what life's about. It's because the Lord's not reigning in their lives. They don't know that deep love that a Christian knows. They haven't met the Savior, and so consequently they have an emptiness within them. And the only thing that will fill that emptiness is the Lord himself. And so he pours love into us. It's amazing love. By the gracious work of the Spirit, our hearts are able to experience the depth of that love and our minds are able to lay hold of the love of Christ, which Scripture says surpasses our own human understanding. It's more than we can know. How amazing is that love? We're we're utterly helpless to do it for ourselves. We can't manufacture it. Natural human love is invariably based on some kind of tangible quality. When you talk to people, you ask them, strange question, but if you ask people why they love their spouse, they will immediately begin to give you qualities and characteristics. We have a lot in common. We think the same things. You know, she's beautiful. He's handsome. There's all kinds of characteristics that one would name. Now imagine this. God loves you in spite of your characteristics. All of the negative things about you, which he knows the very depths of your soul. Scripture says he has plumbed the depths of the soul of mankind. That means he held up the plumb line. He said, wow, you're out of whack, Jeff. And he loves me anyway. He's not going, well, I'm going to love you as long as you get kind of sort of close. Man, I'm the leaning tower of Pisa away from God. And he loves me anyway. You see, God does not love us because we loved him first. He loved us first. And he loved us while we were not loving him. And he loved us when we were telling him to take a hike. God, I don't love you. Go away. Anybody in here ever had that kind of moment with God besides me? I remember, God, I don't want to talk to you right now. You keep convicting me of sin and I do not want to hear it. What does God do? Loves me anyway. Kept on sending people to tell me the same message over and over again. I've actually witnessed people get angry about the love of God. Stop loving me. They get upset because the Holy Spirit begins to work in their life. 
great theologian Charles Hodge, his book on this passage, he said, if God loved us because we loved him, then he would only love us as long as we love him. And only on that condition. And then our salvation would depend on the constancy of our own wicked, treacherous hearts. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if God only loved you to the extent that you love him? Oh, no. I'm so glad that's not true. I'm so glad that's not true. Because not only is that not true, the exact opposite is true. That while I was yet actively engaged in hating on God, disrespecting God, telling God I didn't want anything to do with Him, doing everything I could to destroy my own life and anyone else that got in my way, while I was still in that state, God was lavishing his love upon me. For real. He wasn't trying to buy me off. He wasn't like guys do when they're trying to, you know, win some young lady's attention. They make up, you know, all kinds of stories and they're actually paupers and they live in their car. But all of a sudden, they've got cash in their wallet, and they show up, and, you know, they got a suit, and they show up with roses, and they don't even own any of it. They stole it. <laughs> I love you. Because they just want to get something. See, God's not like that. He's not feeding you a line to get something out of you. He genuinely loves you. Amen? He loves you exactly as you are. With all your faults and weaknesses. Isn't it weird? You know when you travel, you learn a lot about people. And, and I've noticed that as I travel, you know, because I travel pretty light. I've traveled internationally a lot, and so I can travel for a whole week with just a backpack. I know how to do the European thing, you know, you a few shirts and different kinds of, you know, one pair of shoes and it looks good with everything kind of thing. But you learn a lot when you travel with people. We're going to meet in the lobby at 8. And at 9.20, you're still waiting. And you come out and you go, where'd you get that? Oh, well, you know, I had it sent out and pressed and... And we look like this, you know. It's You learn a lot about what people think other people think about them. Did you know that God loves you when you still have morning breath? <laughs> when you have not shaved, when you have not, ladies, put your face on, He loves the real you. The one with the warts and the zits and the bad breath and everything. And I'm speaking about your heart. He loves the real you. The messed up you. The jacked up you. The you that if other people actually saw, they probably would stay away from you. 
God loves that you. And Jesus came and died on Calvary's cross for that you. Not the pretty made up you. Not, not the one that's cleaned up and ready for public view. Because we do that, don't we? I forget, I was guest teaching one time. There's a few things that you always do before you, before you come out to teach. There's certain parts of your clothing that you want to check and make sure that they're where they're supposed to be. Now that we've got that out of the way. You also want to make sure that your buttons are actually in the hole they're supposed to be in and not one off. And I, and, I, and I walked out, and I don't even remember who said something. Go, hey, dude, check your collar. So I'm like, you know, checking my collar. After the message, comes over, dude, you're off by one whole button. And I, sure enough, you know, like this side was up here, and this one was down here. I'm like, oh, man, I will never, ever be asked to teach ever again, not even for kindergartners. Because we're concerned about the outside. God's concerned about the inside. He doesn't eat this stuff on the outside. That's perishing. Matter of fact, he's got a new you for heaven. With that regard, praise the Lord. Amen? He loves the inside you. God hates our sin. But he loves us. And that's why it says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us. That while we were yet still in the bathroom trying to fix the mess that we actually are. While we were still adjusting our collars and worrying about what parts of our clothes were on straight. And whether our makeup was on and whether we would brushed our teeth and had a mint or whatever. While we were worrying about making sure that somebody sees the fact, look at that, you know, oh yeah, he's got a couple of bucks in his pocket. All the stuff that we worry about, God's not even concerned with. He loves you. All of you. And while you're hating on him, he loves you. While you're speaking against him, he loves you. While you're going the wrong way, he's coming towards you. And remember the beautiful picture of the, of the prodigal son. What does that father do? He embarrasses himself. He does what no right-thinking Hebrew man would do. He bears up his garment and tucks it into his waist. And he's showing his legs. You didn't ever do that. And he's running towards his son. And he's bawling like a baby. And my son who was lost is home. That's how much God loves you. He's not embarrassed over you. He's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to call you his daughter. He's not ashamed to say, that's my son. He loves you. He loves you. Don't forget that. You see, we have this incredible understanding that that love also preserves us from 
what we should get. You see, we're all worried about, well, you know, I haven't really done everything I'm supposed to do. Here's the good news and the bad news. The good news is this. You don't have to do anything except believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you're saved. The bad news is is if you don't do that, then you suffer the wrath of God. So the choice is ours. You can either receive the love of God and be freed from the penalty, which is His wrath. Or you can say, I'm going to try and make it on my own. I'm going to pass on that, God. I don't want this fifth link, that that broken, that chain that that can't be broken, but it is broken because, you know, I, I... You know, I'm going to keep living my life my way. You see, the child of God has the wrath of God put away. When people say, well, you know, I'm going to go through the tribulation, then I'll get saved. No, you won't. Because if you won't come to faith in Christ now, while it's easy, you will never come when it gets hard. You won't. Because it's easy now. God will give you faith to believe. And when you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're saved. You're saved. But imagine when your family can't buy a loaf of bread for all the money that you have. Imagine that if you confess Christ, you're going to lose your life, your head. You see, if you won't come while grace is available you'll never come when wrath is in view. You're freed from that as a child of God. It's how much God loves us. He he gives us that opportunity now while there's still time. You see, part of that atoning work is that we've been delivered, which we'll study this when we're in 1 Thessalonians. We'll, We'll get there. For he has not appointed us unto wrath, but unto salvation. When we get to chapter 4, we're going to be going, hallelujah. But because of the cross, he, he took upon himself the penalty of your sin. So you don't have to worry about his wrath. You can walk around freed from that eventuality. But people that don't know him, They're walking around every single day wondering two things. Is there a God? And if there is a God, what does He want from me? What God wants from you is absolute perfection. Here's the good news. The only way that you can get it is by grace and through faith. It's a gift. So there is a God, and what He wants from you is your life. He wants you to trade your life in for a new life in Christ. While we were enemies. And I love this because so many people think they need to keep themselves saved. And if that's you and you're here tonight, I pray you're set free. Because if you could keep yourself, you can't. And the reason I said it that way is no matter what you would do, it's incapable of saving you in the first place.
so you can't save yourself, and thereby you cannot keep yourself. Only grace can keep you. And grace keeps you from the wrath of God. If God had the power and the will to redeem us in the first place, how much more does He have the power to keep us? If the dying Savior could reconcile us to God, then surely the living Savior can keep us reconciled to God. Amen? Don't don't let your salvation be conditional. Don't put it back on you. Because you could never do it in the first place. Now, does that mean that we can walk around and do as we please? No, it does not. The child of God that truly knows God is going to want to flee sin and resist the devil and be totally upset over the fact that that I'm not doing what God's asked me to do. No real child of God is going to be okay delving back into that life of sin. That's why the Apostle Paul said, it's as if you return to your own vomit. You're not going to really want to do that. You see, the thrust of this truth is that Jesus not only delivered us from sin and judgment, but he also delivers us from the uncertainty of trying to earn it ourselves. God's already made that rescue in our lives from sin and death and future judgment. Why would he ever leave us uncertain about the security that we have in our present life He would never do that. Because surely most people would come to the end of themselves and say, well, I'm I'm hopelessly lost still. That's why he didn't put it on you. He didn't put it on me. He put it on Jesus. Every blessing that you have as a Christian comes from Christ. Do you know that? Every blessing you have as a Christian comes from Christ. It doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from law keeping. It doesn't keep from rules. It doesn't come from rules. It doesn't come from you even knowing the word of God. As wonderful as that is and as necessary as it is. Every blessing you have comes from Christ. Your peace with God comes from Christ. This whole chapter. Your grace that you have comes from God. The hope of glory comes from God. The perseverance to get through life's difficulties comes from God. The character that you have comes from Christ. The hope you have comes from Christ. The love you have comes from Christ. The deliverance from sin comes from Christ. The deliverance from eternal damnation comes from Christ. The deliverance ultimately from the eternal penalty of your sin comes from Christ. That wrath that you would have faced, taken care of by Christ. Even your reconciliation to a right relationship with God comes from Christ. So if it all comes from Christ, are we not absolutely sure in Him? It's Him. And the final thing, and we'll wrap up with this. The sixth link. And maybe for some of you, you're saying, well, it's, you know, 
it's kind of subjective. It is, brothers and sisters, nonetheless, absolutely real. Yes, it's subjective, but it's our joy. And not only this, verse 11 says, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have joy through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. You see, the reconciliation was made, but you have to receive the reconciliation. The debt was paid, but you have to ask for the payment to be applied to your account. That's that part when Jesus said you must believe. That's what he was saying. Sufficient money spiritually is available to take care of your debt, so to speak. But you have to ask God for it. And when you do, here's what happens. Yay! Now, probably most of you in here have not ever paid off a mortgage. Probably some of you have. Maybe there's a few in here that have actually had the absolute joy of writing the final check for your house. And you look at it and you go, oh, praise the Lord. And you write that final check. And the house is yours. Other than taxes, it's taken care of. No more payments. That's what happened on your account for sin. Jesus Christ at Calvary's cross wrote the final check to pay for your sin. Every last bit of it. The debt was paid in full. There are no payments due. And so here's what happens. I don't owe anybody anything. Save the debt of love. That's joy. It's happiness. Might be the most profound of all of these links. That abundant joy that says, one day I'm going to heaven. A lot of Christians live like they're going to hell. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You know people that when you talk to them, you would think they're still perishing. Because they walk around in a joyless existence. As if their God fits in a very small box and he's unable to handle anything. And that the whole weight of their sin still rests with them. And it usually works itself out in legalism. Do this, don't do that. Make sure you got this, make sure you have that. Better not have this. Joyless. Beating themselves up and everyone around them. If you're a real child of God, you know you've been freed from the bondage of sin. And you know that you are going to have eternal life. And it gives you joy. Joy in the moment, joy in the future. It's unspeakable joy. That's why the psalmist David, so many of the psalms, let us exalt the name of the Lord together. Why? 
David said, because he alone is worthy to be praised. His name is higher than the heights of the heavens. The heavens declare his glory. There's a reason to have joy as a believer. I'll leave you with this. I've been wandering around humming hymns all day, so forgive me. If you're not a hymn person, I'm sorry. Charles Wesley, one of the greatest hymns that I think exists, is, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. What is not widely known about that particular hymn, originally there were 18 verses. You know why? He wrote it on the one-year anniversary of his salvation experience. And he just started writing all of the things that had come to him because of the grace of God. Hear him deaf, praise him dumb, your loosened tongues employ. The blind behold your Savior come and leap, O lame, for joy. You see, he was joyful in the Lord. He's like, I'm going to heaven. Oh, for a thousand tongues I sing my great Redeemer's praise. He was so in love with the Lord because the Lord was so in love with him. He's like, how could it not be joyous? So how sure are we? I'm as sure as the heavens are in the stars. The heavens are declaring the handiwork of the Lord. The stars, when you go out tonight, there's going to be stars in heaven. When you get up tomorrow, the sun's going to come up. You're going to, your feet are going to actually hit the earth when you wake up in the morning. I'm that sure. That's why I have joy. Tonight's my last night. I know where I'm spending the rest of eternity. So these six links, his divine love. We've been delivered from his wrath. An indescribable joy. Peace in your heart. Grace-filled living. Perseverance in trouble and trial and tribulation that points us to heaven that gives us hope. We are sure in Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that certainty. God, when we think of how secure we are in you, Jesus, but you, God, demonstrated your own love towards us that while we were still sinners, still sinning, You, Jesus, died for us. Lord, if that doesn't make our hearts glad, then I don't know what will. Lord, if we don't recognize the security that we have in you, I don't know what else can be said. Lord, we have come in contact with with the King of kings and the Lord of lords by grace and through faith. And I pray tonight that not one person would leave this building without receiving that grace gift.
and being linked in that great grace chain to the Lord of heaven and earth, our Savior, our Lord Jesus. And so we praise you for the truths of your word. We thank you that you inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul, to write these things. And God, we thank you for that reconciliation, the payment of our debt, and then the clearing, Lord, of that account in heaven. Lord, it says paid in full. It's been wiped clean. Not because we did anything to deserve it. Not because we had any part in it ourselves. But because before the foundations of the world were laid, Jesus Christ, your Son, God, was seen as the Lamb slain, the one that would pay the price with his own blood. We love you. We thank you for loving us. Lord, we thank you for these truths. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.